Yeah, so Joseph just mentioned in his prayer as we read from your word, and, and uh, honestly, I mean, let's, let's be real, we haven't done a whole lot of that the last couple of weeks in, in third nine, and we've been kind of looking at these philosophical, scientific truths and, and ideas and concepts. Week one, we looked at worldview, and then week two, we looked at truth, because if we're going to land on a worldview, we need to know which worldview is the one that is telling the truth, right? And so we looked at truth, and we said, well, truth is that which corresponds with reality, and now we're into figuring out, okay, so what is reality? What's the nature of reality? And that's tonight. But before we get there, I just wanted to, to let you know that what we are doing is a biblical thing. And it's not just because of that one passage where it says, always be ready to make a defense. And if you were in the service today, Pastor Mike even talked about that concept of making a, an apologetic, not apologizing for what you believe in, but defending the truth of, of God's word and the gospel. But there's other things. And, and just for example, in Acts chapter 17, in Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself in Athens, and we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so Paul's engaging in intellectual conversations. He's reasoning with these people. You skip down a little bit in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on and he begins to proclaim the gospel to them. But he's, he's reasoning with people who are unbelievers. He's engaging with them, even willing to go toe-to-toe with them on their turf in the midst of all of these idols. He's engaging them and using his mind, using his intellect in that process. And that's really what we're trying to do with this whole series on apologetics. If all we do is simply make us a smarter room of Christians, this series has, has failed miserably. What we're doing is trying to equip ourselves and give ourselves these tools that we can go out and we can know that we can have conversations, intellectual conversations with people that we encounter on a daily basis and know that the God of the Bible is the true one and only God and that his gospel is the greatest news that anyone on this side of eternity could ever hear. Sometimes, though, we need to be willing to to knock down some arguments before we can get to that point where we can say, hey, let me take you to the word of God. Tonight, we're going to look at another one of those arguments, which is this question of the origin of everything. And there's truths that we encounter on an everyday basis, right, that we don't like, even though we would say, yeah, I don't like that, but yes, I see that it's true. Like if I eat junk food all day long, it's not going to go well for my body. It's just not. I wish that wasn't the case, but it's, it's reality. Every time I run, and, and that's not often, I'll, I'll admit to that, but every time I do run, I hate Adam. Not any Adam in here, but Adam of Adam and Eve, because if he had just led the way he was supposed to lead, and I know God's sovereign and sin's part of his plan and everything else, we'll talk about that more later, but I, it makes me hate it. Why? Because if you don't exercise, it goes bad for you. I hate that that's true, but it's, it's still true, right? How about shots? I took my son Luke into the doctor this week, and, and uh, he's two. The doctor came in and was looking at something else, and she was like, yeah, he's fine. And, and then she was like, oh, yeah, by the way, how about um, a, a flu shot? Do you guys do that? And we said, yeah, we, we do flu shots. And she goes, okay, well, uh, we have it here. I'm, I'm going to go and get that. And my two-year-old's face just went white. Because even at two years old, he's like, I, I, don't, I don't like shots. Big needle shoved into the arm, not, not going to go well. 
And as parents, you try to like lie to your kid, right? And say, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. It's not going to hurt. And you know, it's, they're going to scream. So you grab a book and you try to distract them. And then they, she jabs him and he screams bloody murder. But we don't like shots, even though we, we believe that it's true that a flu shot is a good thing. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. That's your right to be wrong. But it, that it's a good thing. To, to take care of yourself, right? The dentist is the same way. I think I've covered this in here before. I hate going to the dentist. And I'm careful the way I phrase that. I don't hate dentists. So if your dad's a dentist or you want to be a dentist, I don't hate you. I just hate where he works or where you want to work. It's not my favorite place because they always find something wrong. But I understand that it's true that I need to go to the dentist. How about this? You have to get out of the bed in the morning. It's a basic, simple reality that so many times we don't like, right? The alarm clock goes off and we're like, man, if only I had five more minutes. Some of you guys take that five more minutes even though you don't have them. Uh, and that leads to this next truth that exists even though we don't like it. And that is that deadlines and due dates exist, don't they? If you're assigned a paper by your professor, it, it, that, that's a, a hard deadline. Unless you guys go to them and you're like, look, my car flipped over on the way to work and there was a dog that showed up and it ate my paper at the scene of the accident while I was helping deliver this lady's baby. Can I have an extension on my paper? Some of you guys do stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's true that there are deadlines, okay? When you guys start filing your own taxes, and some of you probably already do that, there's a deadline. You have to file, you don't get to say, well, I'm not gonna do that. And yeah, you can get an extension, but you still have to file your taxes every year, okay? That's one of those realities that exist, even though we may not like it. Well, another one that exists that a lot of people don't like is this, the universe or reality, because remember, we said truth is that which corresponds with reality. And I'm telling you that reality is what we find in the known universe, that reality had a beginning. Reality had a beginning. That's a truth that a lot of people don't like. And so they ask themselves this question about the origin of things. There we go. It's not showing up there, but it's showing up there. Okay, fine. They ask themselves this question about the, the origin of things. And, and so we have to, to get to this idea of reality. We have to ask ourselves, if we want to know what truth is, and truth is that which corresponds with reality, then we have to find out what's the nature of reality. Was it created? Has it always been in existence? Is it the product of an explosion of primordial soup? Or what, what happened to everything? How, why is there something rather than nothing? And you might say, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because this, if, if truth really is just a product of naturalism, if reality is just a product of naturalism, in other words, that there was a, a, a gigantic explosion or that you believe in the solid state theory, which says that the universe has always existed, that matter has always existed. If that's the case, then why does truth matter at all? You have to conclude that it doesn't because there's, there's no moral authority behind it. It's just simply a, a biological product of thought or it's just chance, or it's just individual. And we talked about some of that when it comes to our worldview. But what we're going to do tonight, what I'm going to set out to do tonight, and, and I hope be successful for, is, is to show that we have to come face to face with the reality that reality, the universe, was indeed created. It was created. It had a beginning. And if reality, if the universe had a beginning, then there had to be a beginner of beginnings. There has to be an uncaused first cause. And that's really what we're after. So as we think about this, and as we look at, that's our, our galaxy right there, as we look at this and we ask ourselves the question, number one, okay, so was there a beginning? How can we know that there was a beginning? Well, as good Christians, we would say what? Because God created the heavens and the earth, right? And that is what verse? That is 
Yes, Genesis 1-1. You guys are on top of it tonight. This is good. I can tell it's going to be a good night. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We would believe that as, as Christians that that is truth. Amen? Yes, north-south. Okay. If you've got east-west, awesome. Come talk to me afterwards. But, but we would say, okay, was there a beginning? And, and inside of our circles, we would say, yes, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is true. He did create the heavens and the earth. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be sheepish about saying that, hey, you know what? I believe that this universe was created by God. And here's why. Because not only does the Bible tell us this, but then it's supported by the way that God designed and created everything. I'm going to give you an, an acronym Surf, I don't surf, but it fit the, the acronym here. Surf, to help you remember four points that you can bring up in discussion to, to show that the universe did indeed have a beginning. Because it's important for us to be able to get there first. So the first one is, is S, okay? Surf, S. It's the second law of thermodynamics. You're like, whoa, this is, okay, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. You said thermodynamics. Stay with me. You'll be able to get this. It's, it's not hard once we, once we get through it. Second law of thermodynamics says this. It states that the entropy, okay, entropy is, is deterioration, okay? I'll illustrate this in a second. The entropy or deterior, deterioration of an isolated system such as the universe that is not in equilibrium. Equilibrium is a state in which opposing forces are balanced, I'll talk about that more in just a second too. Will tend to increase entropy, de deterioration will tend to increase over time, approaching a maximum value at equilibrium. Whoa, what in the world? Okay, if you take an ice cube out of your freezer at home and you set it on your counter and you leave and go to school, go to work, go to church and come back at the end of the day, what's going to happen to that ice cube? Is it going to still be frozen? No, what's going to have happened to it? It will have melted and be a puddle of water on the counter. That's the second law of thermodynamics at work. Okay? That's what that's, that, all that convoluted crazy language is talking about there. It's saying that, that things gradually lose energy over time. And that whole idea of equilibrium is this, that why does the ice cube melt? Because the surrounding atmosphere is, is warmer, right, than the ice cube. If you pulled it out of your freezer and somehow your house was below freezing, would the ice cube melt? No, because it would be at equilibrium. There would be no opposing forces. But because it's warmer, the, the ice cube tries to cool down the warmth and the warmth of the room tries to heat up the ice cube until they reach a state of equilibrium where it's both at room temperature. Because since the ice cube's tiny, it's going to lose to the room, to the temperature of the room. You guys following that concept? Okay. So melted ice cube, what in the world does that have to do with the universe? Well, to understand how this demonstrates the universe had a beginning, we have to look at the first law of thermodynamics. Don't worry, I'm not going to have another slide with confusing things on it. The first law of thermodynamics states this. The amount of energy in the universe is finite. It's finite. It's not infinite. Okay, so there's a set amount of energy in the universe. And the second law of thermodynamics says that that energy is what? Running out, okay? Gradually decreasing over time. This is scientific. This is physics that is proving these things and applying it to our universe. And so when we look at that, we have to ask ourselves a question. If the universe in which we still live still has energy, and that energy is finite, that means that this universe can't be infinite. That it had to have a beginning. You guys track with that argument? 
It's like a flashlight. If you walked around and, and you came upon a flashlight on a, a hiking trail at night and that flashlight was in the on position and there was light coming out of it, what would you assume about that flashlight? That it had been there for a long time? No, you would assume, hey, somebody just dropped that on the ground, right? And you'd probably start wondering, why is there a lone flashlight on a creepy trail in the middle of the night? What happened to this person? But you would assume that it hasn't been there very long. Why not? It still has energy emitting from it, right? The batteries haven't died. So you're thinking, okay, this is, somebody dropped this recently. And and then you're thinking free flashlight, right? But if you came up on the flashlight and the flashlight was on the ground and you stooped down and you picked it up and you realized that it was in the on position, but there was no light coming out of it, what would you assume? It's been there for a while, right? The batteries are dead. Somebody didn't just drop this on the ground unless they were carrying a, a broken flashlight around with them. And that's stupid. But you would assume, yeah, the, the energy is run out. So this hasn't been here, or if the energy was still working, you would say this hasn't been here for very long because otherwise it would be dead. Well, it's the same thing with our universe. As we consider the first and second law of thermodynamics, we have to conclude that the universe did have a beginning. So as you guys are thinking about this, that's the S, the second law of thermodynamics. Did you guys know that our sun The sun in our solar system is slowly losing mass. Did any of you guys know that? The sun is slowly losing mass, and yet it's losing mass over time. It's not like it stopped and it's like, okay, no, I'm done losing mass. It's it's constantly losing mass. So if that's the case, how can we argue that the universe has been around an infinite amount of time? We can't, can we? We have to say it's, it's clearly not been. Otherwise, the sun would have gone into extinction long ago so would have all of the the stars that we have and and everything else. And so the the fact that the universe is still here, still in existence, is like finding that flashlight on the ground with the light still shining from it. It tells us, hey, this, this universe had a beginning. It had a beginning because there's still energy and it's not gone into total extinction. All right, next one. You. So you've got S, second law of thermodynamics. There's still energy being used. There's a finite amount of energy, and so the origin of the universe is is provable that way. How about you? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. And when I say the universe is expanding, I don't mean that, that stars and planets are expanding into space. I mean that even space itself is expanding outward as well. Back in 1927, there was two guys. You probably recognize the one on your right. Does anybody recognize the guy on the left? The guy on the left. The one on the right is Einstein. The guy on the left is Edwin Hubble. You guys heard of the Hubble Space Telescope? So in 1927, Edwin Hubble sat down at his telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory and discovered that the distant galaxies that he was able to see through his telescope had a red shift to their light. (gasps) right? Oh my goodness, that's pointless. No, it it means actually a lot. The red shift to the light means that the universe and everything in the galaxies is, is moving away from us, okay? And so when he was looking through, everyone at the time, well, not quite everyone, we'll get to Einstein in a second, but, but everyone at the time was kind of thinking things were just static out there. That nothing was, was moving away, nothing was moving in, because then we're Armageddon time, because everything's coming back towards us. We'll get there in a second. But hey, everything's just static out there. Well, in 1916, the other guy on here, Albert Einstein, came up with this theory of general relativity. Okay, And the theory of general relativity states that matter, space, and time all came into existence at the same time. 
all came into existence at the same time and they're all moving together relative to one another away from us. And you know, Einstein hated that discovery. And it was his own discovery. But he hated it such that he even introduced a fudge factor to his equation so that he wouldn't have to buy into the the reality of the mathematics and the science and what it was proving. Because he knew that if things were moving away from us, that that means originally they all started in in an initial creative act. In Einstein, as as an agnostic, and, and even at times an atheist, but eventually an agnostic, he didn't want that to be the case. Well, in 1927, when Hubble sat down at his observatory, at his telescope, and looked through the telescope, and he saw that red shift, he proved Einstein's theory of general relativity, that the universe, that everything, space, time, and matter, is expanding outward, away from us. And this argument is not that the earth is at the center of the universe, but if you take, think about a balloon, and if you drew dots all on the outside of a balloon, and then you blew up the balloon, the dots would move further and further away from one another, even as they moved away from the origin, wouldn't they? And so what we're saying is everything is expanding outward. Everything is expanding outward. Think about it this way. Think about it like a sneeze. I looked for a lot of images for sneezes this week, and that was the, the best one that I could find. Yeah. I don't know who that guy is, but he's famous because he's on the internet sneezing. When someone sneezes, tiny bits of phlegm and saliva explode into the air, don't they? In fact, the average sneeze has 40,000 droplets per sneeze. These 40,000 droplets are projected from the mouth at speeds over 200 miles per hour. That's amazing. That is amazing. And scientists at MIT, these, people are doing these studies, okay? This, this exists. So what are you doing at school? I'm studying how far a sneeze travels at MIT. Yeah, good. I'm glad you're using your money well. Compass 2020, hey, we, let's explore how far a sneeze goes. Yeah, they, they, the, the scientists at MIT, they, they decided to, to measure how far a sneeze could travel, and it can travel all the way across a, a room. In fact, here's what's really gross, because it it gets caught up into this gas cloud from the sneeze, that the the particulates from the sneeze can actually travel across the room and get sucked up into the ventilation system. So next time you're on a plane and you hear somebody sneeze, just think about that, okay? Just hold on to that and be like, awesome, I'm going to be digesting that stuff pretty soon. Or if somebody sneezes tonight and you're sitting behind them, just own it. Just get the emergency at home and just start fighting whatever you just got soaked with, get a flu shot, okay? No, but, but a sneeze, you guys see the, the, the point, right? That everything's expanding outward from the point of origin of the sneeze, right? Everything is, is exploding away from the sneezer, right? At the sneezee. Um, and and that's, that's what Hubble was seeing with his telescope. Is he was seeing everything is, is spreading out from a point of single origin, but the sneeze illustration falls short in, in one particular way, in, in one significant way. And it's this. Everything that, that becomes the sneeze already existed inside of the person, didn't it? But if we took creative history, and if we were able to rewind it all the way back to the end, or the beginning, I guess you could say, it would collapse all the way back in on itself, not to the point of a tabletop or a basketball, or even a pin, it would collapse all the way back in on itself to absolute nothingness. Nothingness. And you say, well, 
how can you be sure? Isn't, isn't that just you as a Christian believing that or suggesting that? Well, here's a, an agnostic uh, physicist, Lawrence Krauss, who says this. Everyone now knows that the universe is not static, but is expanding. And that the expansion began, we don't agree with this, but the expansion began in an incredibly hot, dense, big bang, approximately 13.72 billion years ago. I love that he says approximately with a number like 13.72 billion. Okay, Okay, we get that this is a guess, all right? Um, So this is a guy that's saying, a physicist saying, hey, the universe is expanding, okay? So it's not just Hubble, it's not just Einstein, it's not just me up here. This is a, a modern day physicist saying, yes, everyone agrees that the universe is expanding. Okay, so why does that matter? Well, atheist Peter Atkins says this. Now we go back in time. Back in time, beyond the moment of creation, to when there was no time, to when there was no space. At this time before time, Peter Atkins imagines a swirling dust of mathematical points which recombine again and again and again and finally come by trial and error to form our space and time universe. Do you see how all of a sudden, once we admit that the universe is expanding and it had a single point of origin, that now all of a sudden, once you reject God, you've got a huge problem logically to figure out how everything came into being? And so this guy, Dr. Peter Atkins, says that there were swirling uh, mathematical points which were combining and recombining and breaking apart and coming back together until by chance, by trial and error, they happened to form our space and time universe. Well, you know, if if I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Atkins, what would be my question to him? Where did those mathematical points come from? See, he's arguing for infinite, uh, an infinite universe. He's he's just arguing for, for it from a different way. But you still have to deal with the question of origin. You say, well, Pastor PJ, it can't be that simple. It is that simple. Things don't just appear out of nowhere. Here's another atheist, Anthony Kenny, says this, according to the Big Bang Theory, the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing. Man, that sounds a lot like creation ex nihilo, right? Which is creation out of nothing, which is what the Bible teaches. And this is an atheist scientist saying, look, if you are an honest atheist you have to, who believes in the Big Bang, you have to believe in and agree with what the scientific evidence shows us, which is that everything came out of nothing. Nothing. So the universe is expanding, which says that it had a point of origin from which it began this expansion. Okay? So that's the U. Let's go next. R. Are. This is where things start to get crazy. Radiation from creation. Radiation from creation. In 1965, there were two scientists. Two scientists, these two guys. Nope. Swiped the wrong thing. These two guys. Penzias and Wilson were their last names. And they were working for Bell Labs in New Jersey, and they were working on this giant antenna that's behind them. That's what the, the thing is on the, the right-hand side there. And that's those two standing below it. So this, this massive antenna that they had that was pointed out towards outer space. And they were working for Bell Labs in New Jersey when they all of a sudden began to detect this faint radiation with this antenna. And they were thinking to themselves, okay, 
that's weird, that's strange, let's point the antenna in a different direction and see what we find somewhere else. Well, they pointed it in a different direction, still found it, and still found it, and still found it, and still found it, and still found it. Everywhere they pointed this antenna, they still found this, this radiation, this low-level radiation that they were picking up from outer space. So they made the logical conclusion that anyone would, and they said, well, it's got to be because there's too much bird poop on our antenna. I don't know what kind of birds are flying around New Jersey, but they think that there's radioactive bird poop that gives false readings on the antenna. So no lie, they, they actually did this. They had somebody come out and clean that gigantic antenna of all of the bird poop, which talk about a reason to go to college right there. You don't have to be that guy. Hey, I've got a job for you. What job? Go inside the antenna and clean out all the radioactive bird poop. No. So they cleaned it all off and they went back in and they expected their signal to be clear. But what did they find? They found that the radiation was still there. They were still picking something up. Again, everywhere they pointed their antenna, they were still picking up this radiation. Well, eventually what they found was that they had stumbled upon what came to be known in a lot of the, the circles as the afterglow from the Big Bang, okay? So the explosion takes place, and after this explosion takes place, there's this background radiation. There's still light and heat that continues to emanate after an explosion. And at this point, the waves, wavelengths of the light is so faint that we can't see it but the, it can still be picked up on the radar. And so eventually, NASA got into it, and they created this thing. This thing's called the, the COBE satellite. C-O-B-E. Stands for Cosmic Background Explorer. Because the radiation that they found, they determined, they, they called it the Cosmic Background Radiation. And so they sent up this satellite to map it, and the satellite eventually kicked back images that looked like this. I have no idea what that means. But that's what the satellite was finding. And they were looking at that going, yes, this is the, the cosmic background radiation. And you say, well, why does that matter? Because what they're discovering, what they're seeing is remnant heat from the creation of the universe. They're calling it the Big Bang. We would say from the moment that God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty amazing when you think about that. Agnostic uh, astronomer, excuse me, agnostic astronomer, Robert Jastrow. Again, not a believer. He says this, no explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball radiation. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas, interesting to hear an agnostic call somebody a doubting Thomas, is that the radiation discovered by Penzias and Wilson has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. Supporters of the steady state theory have tried desperately to find an alternative explanation, but they have failed. At the present time, the Big Bang Theory has no competitors. In other words, those who wish to say that the universe has always existed in a steady state, that it didn't have an origin, are faced with yet another blow to their theory with this cosmic background radiation. The notion that the universe had a beginning, guys, is scientifically unavoidable. It's not, it's not just us standing on, up here and reading Genesis 1-1. It's us standing up here and reading Genesis 1-1 and saying, prove it wrong. And what we find is the universe that God has created has proven it right time and time and time and time and time and time again. So there are this cosmic background radiation. And there's, there's more to that argument, but it, it got me turned around upside down, inside out this weekend, this week preparing. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to let it, let it lie. So it's S-U-R, the last one, F. The last one, F. And, and F is more of a philosophical argument for us than it is a scientific argument. But it's this. It's the argument of finitude, the state of having limits or boundaries. 
the state of having limits or boundaries. Sean McDowell, who's one of the authors of one of the books I recommended this week, uh, The uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Sean McDowell poses this question in that book. He says, imagine you went for a walk in the park and stumbled across someone proclaiming aloud, five, four, three, two, one. There, I finally finished. I just counted down from infinity. He says, what would your initial thought be? Would you wonder how long that person had been counting? Probably not. More likely, you would be in utter disbelief. Why? Because you know that such a task cannot be done. Just as it's impossible to count up to infinity from the present, it's equally impossible to count down from infinity to the present moment. So do you see the problem that creates for those that argue that our universe is infinite? Has existed from infinitely in the past? If the universe has always existed, if it has an infinite past, this is a massive problem for like McDowell illustrated, we couldn't get to today. Do you guys get that? It's known as the problem of infinite regress. Because if we're going all the way back in time to infinity, you can always go one day further and 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 one day further because an infinite state is limitless. It has no beginning and it has no end. And so it it would be impossible if our universe was truly infinite for us to ever arrive at our present day. In fact, McDowell goes on and he says this, he says, any point you pick in the past to begin, no matter how remote would always require an infinite number of previous points. Here's the bottom line. We could never get to the present moment if we had to cross an actual infinite number of moments in the past. Yet, since the present moment is real, it must have been preceded by a finite past that includes a beginning or a first event. Does that make sense? Let's track with that. That if you want to go back 13.72 billion years and say that's when the Big Bang started and yet you're arguing for this infinite matter that existed beforehand to produce the Big Bang, I would say, okay, why, why 13.72 billion? How did you get there? Why not 13.73 billion? Why not 13.74 billion? If it's truly infinite in the past, how did you even ever get to the point 13.74 billion years ago? You never would have even arrived there to cause the Big Bang to produce everything. So there had to even be for the the most avowed, eternal, solid state person, there has to be a beginning point. Otherwise, you never get here. Here's a horrible example that I created this week. Anyways, I thought of these events. I I don't know why. I guess I was feeling particularly violent in the in-between there. But if we take today... And then you go back to the Revolutionary War, and then you go back to the Crusades, and then you go back to the Egyptian Empire. You could keep going all the way back, 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 but but eventually you you have to continue to go back and back and back in an infinite past, and and you never get there. You never get to the, the, the final point when you can start moving forward again. You never get to the beginning. And so that's a massive problem for those that want to argue that the universe is infinite. Okay, so we've looked at SURF, S-U-R-F, second law of thermodynamics. We've looked at the universe expanding. We looked at, at the radiation from creation. We looked at the, the finitude that our universe has. Notice there was no B anywhere in that, was there? It wasn't SURF or SUBURF or anything like that. It didn't have anything that said 
we believe because the Bible says so. Or we believe there was no P either, was there? We believe because our pastor told us so or because our parents told us so. Okay, these are, are, are things that the world supports what scripture teaches. So as we look to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, we can look around and say it, it, it's the universe declaring the glory of God. It's, it's plain everywhere we look. It's confirming what scripture teaches. By the way, just to be clear, in case you were wondering, because I know the, the term Big Bang was thrown out there, I'm not a, a theistic evolutionist. I don't think you can be a, theo, a theistic evolutionist and be a believer. I'm not. I, I, when we're talking about Big Bang, I'm talking about the creative moment where, where God created. And was that an explosion? I, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask him when I get there. I don't know. But, but when we're talking about that creative, when we're, I'm appealing to these agnostics and atheists, they're describing what their framework of creation is as the Big Bang. That's not my framework for creation. My framework for creation is in the beginning God created, okay? But I'm saying they're agreeing with us that the universe had a beginning. Okay, well, there's those options. But is there any other option? Is there any other option than to conclude that the universe had a beginning? Yes, there is, but you're not going to like them. The first one is known as the the cosmic rebound theory. The cosmic rebound theory, okay? The cosmic rebound theory says this, that the universe has been expanding and contracting and expanding and contracting and expanding and contracting forever, and so right now we see that the universe is expanding and that makes sense to them because they would say, well, we're just in one of those expansion cycles. Yeah, the, the, the flaws on this are, are, are plentiful. Number one, even the secular world doesn't describe it as the big bang, 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 right? It's just one bang. But there's more to it. The, 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 there's no evidence for this. There's no evidence of a time when the world contracted back in on itself. None. Nothing, no, radi- no, no evidence out there to suggest. This is a theory that they're positing because they don't want to come to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning. But there's more wrong with it. There's evidence actually not just that doesn't exist for it, but there is evidence that does exist against it. Number one, the amount of matter needed to stop the universe expanding, the gravitational force that would be needed to stop the universe expanding and to reverse course and draw it back in is more than exists in our universe today. Second, as scientists have observed our universe expanding outward, what they've observed is not a universe that's expanding at a steady rate, not a universe that's expanding at a slowing rate, but a universe that's actually speeding up as it expands, which doesn't give us a whole lot of reason to believe that it's going to stop all of a sudden and come back at us, right? Third, the whole idea contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. Remember we said there's a finite amount of energy in the universe, and that energy is, is decreasing. Well, if we're doing this over and over and over and over again, that's going to use up a whole lot of energy, right? And if it's been doing this forever, which is the argument for infinite past, as we've already talked about, eventually it's going to stop doing this because all the energy is going to run out. The other reason why the, the, this doesn't exist is what we just talked about with the F, the finitude, that if this has been doing this forever and ever and ever and ever again, then we never get to this moment. So that's the cosmic rebound theory. Then there's this one. This one was the most amusing one for me, I think. Stephen Hawking, you guys heard the name Stephen Hawking before, right? Smart guy, was a smart guy. Um, he's more intelligent than now than he, he was when he said this thing. He knows more now than he was when he argued this. Unfortunately, his reality is he knows it in hell uh, unless he 
had a deathbed conversion. But this was what he put forward uh, as an explanation for the fact that the universe could still be infinite. He divided our conception of time into two categories, real time and what he called imaginary time. Guys, I'm not making this up. It's one of the most well-respected atheists that the secular world has ever, as though the religious world has put forward an atheist. This is the most well-respected atheist that, that exists out there, that existed out there, past tense. And he created imaginary time to explain away having to deal with the origin of the universe. This is his language. Real time is that which we experience on an everyday basis. It's the actual chronological passing of time. Hours in a day, days in a month, birthdays, anniversaries, aging, etc. That's real time. Imaginary time is a mathematical concept where time is thought of at a right angle to ordinary real time. And you say, what? And I would say, I have no clue. But Hawking said this about it. He said, the universe has a beginning in real time at the Big Bang, and it may well have an end if it collapses to a big crunch. He was a clever guy. But, he says, in imaginary time, it has no beginning or end. He said, imaginary time closes in on itself like the surface of the earth, which has no beginning or end. You guys remember when we talked about worldviews? You remember when we talked about if, if you reject God, it naturally ends in nihilism, right? In total despair. And then the, the worldviews that now exist are, are attempts to escape that despair, through existentialism or through new age spirituality or through pantheism or through postmodernism. It's, it's all to avoid despair. And they, they go to all of these great lengths to try to create these convoluted explanations of how to achieve purpose and meaning in life. Well, guys, when we break it down into science, all of these atheists who have been studying these things and continually face to face with the undeniable reality that the world had a beginning and knowing that logically they have to conclude that if it had a beginning, something had to cause the beginning that is not bound by time or space or matter to get around that. They're doing things like making up things called imaginary time and the world is gobbling it up going, oh, well, it's Stephen Hawking. He's brilliant. No, he, he was an idiot when it came to this. I don't mean to be harsh about it, but, but guys, this is idiocy. It is. And, and I can only think of the, the despair that must have racked him knowing that he was just making stuff up on the fly. In the real world, he said, his words, in the real world, the universe had a beginning. Well, guess what, Stephen Hawking? You have to live, breathe, and die in the real world. And whatever your imaginary world is has no bearing on it. So that's an option, the imaginary world. Third is uncertainty. The law of uncertainty, it involves the law of causality, which says that all events have a cause. And we see this, right? If, if I raise my hand up in the air like this, why did my hand raise up in the air like that? Well, it had a cause. My brain started firing the synapses to tell my body and, and the muscles to contract and everything else to, to, to lift my arm up in the air, right? It, it doesn't just do that by itself. That'd be weird. We understand the, the law of, of causality. If I hit this, it's going to make a noise. Why? Why? Because I'm hitting it. 
and because there's a sound that is caused by the striking of my hand against the pulpit. The law of causality, where there are some that will like to say, you know what, to get around the, the idea that the universe had to have a beginning, we'll just throw out the law of causality. There didn't have to be a cause to the beginning or to the Big Bang. We'll, we'll throw out the law of causality. It doesn't apply here. And what they'll do to that is they'll appeal to the realm of quantum physics, to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle pertains to our inability to predict the behavior of subatomic particles or electrons. So the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty says we can't predict how the the speed or location or direction of subatomic particles. And so the the atheist will look to that and say, well, see, we can't predict what's going on with these subatomic particles. So therefore, we're going to throw out the law of causality and the universe didn't have to have a cause to start. The problem with this is there's a difference between not being able to predict something and knowing that something had a cause. Let me illustrate this. I may not be able to predict when my twins will start screaming. But when they start screaming, I know that there's a reason they started screaming. I don't just sit back and go look at my wife and shrug and go, well, we'll never know. We'll never know. Just because you can't predict when or the direction or speed of something to then all of a sudden say, well, see, it doesn't have a cause. It's a non sequitur. It, it, it doesn't line up. And so because they want to avoid, again, this conclusion that the universe had a beginning, they throw out this law of uncertainty that which bails on the law of causality and says, well, see, it's, it's uncertain. And so we can appeal to that with the beginning of the universe. There didn't have to be an origin. There didn't have to be a cause. It could have just happened. Y'all, these are but a few of the alternatives that people will cling to. There, there's more. There's the multiverse model, which suggests that there's more than one universe or that our universe was, was planted by another universe or whatever. You still have to come back to, okay, what began everything? And you have, to, you have to be a person of intellectual integrity there. Okay, we, we have to stop playing games. We have to stop with the, the mathematical points that existed. Where, where did those come from? We have to get back to what caused it. Why though? Why are so many people so uncomfortable with the fact that the universe had a beginning? Because it requires people to grapple with the problem of a creator. And that's what we're going to wrap up our time with tonight is by focusing on this. Why does it matter? Because it, it focuses, forces people to come to grips with and grapple with the idea that there must be something that caused it. The uncaused first cause. There's an argument called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Kalam Cosmological Argument. And it says this. So first, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. It says the universe began to exist. Okay, we've just looked at the evidence for that. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. I'll ask you a question. Any of y'all ever been to the Getty? Okay. You walk through the Getty, you, you see these amazing works of art up on the wall. Do any of you stop and say, man, that's amazing that that just showed up there one day? 
No, you don't, do you? You conclude that what? Somebody created it. Somebody painted it. Somebody carved it. Right? You don't go and stand before Michelangelo's David and, whoa, that's amazing that that just showed up one day. No, you understand that it was created. Why? Because you understand that it had a beginning. And in order for it to have a beginning, somebody had to begin it. Something had to begin it. If we drive by a building, we don't drive by a building and go, wow, that's amazing that that just popped there. Out of thin air. There no building and then building. Whoa. No reason. Just building. No, you, you understand what? That, that an architect designed it. In fact, some of you may be pursuing a degree in architecture because you want to help people build buildings. I guarantee you when you're involved in designing your first building, you're not going to want people to drive by and be like, man, that's amazing that that thing just showed up out of nowhere. You're going to want them to go, whoa, that's awesome. Who's the architect that what? Designed that building. So why with a work of art that hangs in a museum that one day could catch fire with a wildfire and just, just be destroyed and one day will, will ultimately be destroyed? And why with buildings, why are we willing to give the creators credit and yet when it comes to the universe, we will do anything to avoid giving the creator credit. The same laws apply. The same rules apply. We'll look at this more in detail next week. But see, this is the, the, the thing that, that causes so many people to do everything that they possibly can to avoid coming to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning because they don't want to deal with the beginner of all beginnings. And some people will say, well, you think God created the world. Who created God? That's a... a, a a false argument, a faulty argument, because what the Kalam cosmological argument states is everything that what? Begins to exist has a cause. God, by very definition, does not begin to exist. And so to say, well, who created God is like asking, what's the smell of the color red? It's a categorical impossibility. It doesn't make any sense. Again, don't, don't just take my word for it. Here's Robert Jastrow, again, Jastrow, Jastrow, there you go, that word. He says this, he says, now we see the astronomical evidence that leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. This is not a believer, this is an agnostic. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Jastrow continues, he says, Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Guys, this is an astronomer who wouldn't ever dare darken the doors of the church. And yet his conclusion is something supernatural led to the beginning of everything. And he's not a chump. Anthony Flew. He's now a believer, but he was an atheist. But listen to his progression of thought. 
He says, when I first met the Big Bang Theory as an atheist, it seemed to me the theory made a big difference because it suggested that the universe had a beginning. He goes on. As long as the universe could be comfortably thought to, not o- to be not only without end, but also without beginning, it remained easy to see its existence as brute facts. But the Big Bang Theory changed all that. If the universe had a beginning, it becomes entirely sensible, almost inevitable to ask what produced this beginning. And that's the key. What produced this beginning? It's the question of the uncaused first cause. The question of the beginner of beginnings. What started everything? What caused this initial creative act? Why is there something rather than nothing? Frank Turek, an apologist Christian, says this. Since the evidence shows that time, space, and matter were created at the Big Bang. That's Einstein's theory of relativity. The most probable scientific conclusion is that the universe was caused by something outside of time, space, and matter. Sounds a lot like God. This argument, y'all, does not lead us straight to the Christian God. It doesn't. But it does provide some helpful characteristics of this creator. In order to be the uncaused first cause, the one who began everything, this creator must be non-physical. He can't be material, okay? Because matter, space, and time, according to Einstein, all came into being at the same time, and we would agree with that as believers, So he's immaterial. He is spaceless, timeless. He is self-existent. He's got to be intelligent to be able to design things the way that he designed them. He's got to be incredibly powerful to create everything out of nothing. And he's got to be incredibly personal as well to want, to desire, to create everything that he created. We can conclude those things by looking at the evidence that we've looked at tonight. And that still, again, sounds a lot like the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, doesn't it? So yes, we we haven't proven the existence of the Christian God. We haven't converted anyone with these arguments, but we've opened the door. And y'all, that's what I, I want to get you to the place of being able to do with these things. I want you to get to the place where you can say boldly and confidently that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is true and I believe that. And you know what? Whatever arguments you have, bring it. But ultimately, guys, what I want this to do is I want it to get to the point where you have to ask them the question, why are you so uncomfortable with the idea that there's a creator? It's a great question to ask when you're having these conversations. You know, set the billions of years aside for a minute and, and that whole train of thought. I, I, I don't believe this universe is billions of years old. Um, we can get into that on the side if you'd like to. But, but set that debate aside and just ask that simple question. What makes you so uncomfortable with the notion that there could be a creator? And a lot of times it's because we ultimately don't want to be held accountable for anything. And if I can deny the existence of a creator, then 
ultimately I am my own God. There's no authority in my life. There's no one to whom I'm ultimately accountable. And so that will lead, Lord willing, into some good conversations for you to, to talk more about that, to talk about the good news that says, look, I, I do believe that there's a creator and I am accountable to him. And I'm just the, the sterile in a vacuum. That's terrifying. But there's good news. There's good news. He didn't leave us falling short of him. He didn't abandon us. He didn't walk away from us. He didn't scrap us and start over. Instead, he sent his son for us. You see how that leads into the gospel? So have these conversations. Engage with people. Like Pastor Mike was talking about this morning. He said, I I had this assignment. Go out and share the gospel with five people and then write a paper about it. He said the first four people told him to to take a hike, to pound sand, I think were his words. And I I had never heard that before, but okay, pound sand. But he said that fifth person was like, yeah, I want to hear more. And so don't be afraid, guys, to fail with these conversations. God's still going to be on the throne, okay? You're not responsible for preserving the truth of God's word. He's got that covered, okay? But don't be afraid to go out and have these conversations. Start using this stuff now. Again, why this order? Does truth exist? Yes. What is truth? Truth is that which corresponds with reality. What is the nature of reality? Well, we've seen tonight. Reality had a beginning, which means it was created, which means that there's someone who has the authority over what is true. Do you guys see how this is building as we we progress on this? Next week, we're going to look at Okay, so who is that authority? Who is that creator? Spoiler alert. It's the guy who wrote this book. Um, If I show up next week and teach anything but that, you can come up and uh, drag me out and put somebody up here who deserves to be up here to to actually uh, preach the truth. But yeah, um, next week we're going to be looking at the existence of God, arguments for the existence of God. I'll, I'll try to fairly treat some arguments against the existence of God and, and show why we can see them and say, okay, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I think you're wrong. It's okay to tell somebody they're wrong, okay? Maybe not to call somebody an idiot. Maybe I shouldn't have called, what's his face, Stephen Hawking an idiot. His points were idiotic, but still, you can tell somebody that they're wrong. It's okay. Even if you're in a safe space at school, there are no safe spaces with the gospel. It's not bound by whatever circles that people want to draw around themselves and say, don't offend me because I I can't have my feelings hurt. Be okay telling somebody you're wrong. It's okay. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that though all of us are prone to be wrong on so many different things, you are the God of what is true and what is right and that you've revealed yourself to us through the scriptures and you've revealed yourself to us through creation that we can look around at creation and see that there was a beginning in, in that the way that you've even ordered and designed this universe confirms Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth, Lord. God, it's of great comfort for us to know that you will never be proven wrong. Lord, for literally for millennia upon millennia, people have been trying to prove you wrong, trying to prove you wrong. People way smarter than anyone in this room, and yet no one has been successful. Lord, what a great source of comfort that is. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to use some of these things, to have good conversations with people, not to win an argument, but to win souls, to share the gospel with people. Lord, may these things be simple on-ramps to get to the gospel, and may we be quick to get there when we see the opportunity. God, I pray that there would be fruit born from this series, Lord, for your glory and for your honor in Christ's name. Amen.